When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone. Jake Tapper here. If you're a fan of The Lead, I think you're going to like this special miniseries I'm about to share with you. It's called America's Longest War. What Went Wrong? in Afghanistan. And it's a documentary that we put together during the final months of America's withdrawal. In it, you're going to hear conversations I had with eight former U.S. commanding generals who led the war effort over two decades and four administrations. We try to examine the mission and the missteps, how political decisions hurt the ability of service members to succeed, whether the Pentagon misrepresented the Afghan military's abilities to the public, and how after 20 years of sacrifice, the U.S. withdrawal resulted in the return to power by the Taliban in August. Here's the first part of America's longest war, what went wrong in Afghanistan, where we take you back to the very beginning. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. I'm speaking to you today from the same spot President George W. Bush informed our nation that the United States military has gone strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime. We went to Afghanistan because of a horrific attack that happened 20 years ago. We delivered justice to bin Laden a decade ago. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. That was 10 years ago. Think about that. We're going to stay until we have a deal or we have total victory. I've learned the hard way. There was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. The Taliban is continuing its offensive across Afghanistan. Taliban fighters have broken through the front line. The Afghan army has collapsed. The central government has fallen. Panic fills the air in Kabul. President Biden said this is not going to be a Saigon. But guess what? There's been an explosion outside the Kabul airport. 170 Afghans killed. 13 American troops killed. I stand squarely behind my decision. It's time to end America's longest war. Is it a mistake? I think it is, yeah, because I think the consequences are going to be unbelievably bad. I must say that it's a moral defeat for the United States. I think the president is right. Enough is enough. What was all of this for? That has to be the question veterans are asking. Two decades, more than $2 trillion, more than 6,000 American lives, more than 100,000 Afghan lives later, the bipartisan debacle that was the war in Afghanistan ended much like it began. We made a lot of mistakes. Now, the real story of what went wrong. Before I go to my grave, I hope they have that question answered. The mission. Do you think the surge worked? The mistakes. I personally resented the war in Iraq. The truth. Corruption was one of the main reasons. And the lies. They just couldn't bring themselves to tell the truth. 
I always love physical fitness and being in the military. It was only probably after being in the military for a while that I realized that I turned to physical fitness and things like biking, that that was de facto mental health for me. To get on a bike and just turn yourself inside out and not think about anything else is a key component of staying sane and healthy. My name is Jason Dempsey. I was a Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Army. I was in Afghanistan for all 2009, again in 2012 and 13, and then for a brief assessment visit in 2014. What makes the problem of assessing our failure in Afghanistan difficult is everyone can think they're doing their best. We all left with great write-ups and we got a pat on the back. We convinced ourselves that we were doing well, but we never held anybody accountable for, well, wait a minute, if everybody gets an A, but the overall effort's still an F, who do we hold accountable? It means it's super easy for political leaders to say, well, the military has this. Congress has shown decade after decade that they have no desire to own any kind of oversight of the way we're fighting. But there comes a point when the line between self-delusion and a lie is irrelevant. If you're still pursuing something that doesn't make sense and you're inappropriately using the blood and treasure of the American people. We have to have these discussions, right? The lives of American soldiers, even if it's just a dozen, it's not a goddamn rounding error. Those are lives. In this war. So anyone who truly respects the military should absolutely be calling for a congressional hearing. It means that you are absolutely questioning the generals so that we don't replicate what we did in this war for the next one. This is going in the right direction. During the final weeks of America's withdrawal, back in Washington, I met with almost all of the war's chief architects, the commanders of the war in Afghanistan, for some tough questions and painful reflections on what went wrong, on what they could have done differently, and the lessons we must all learn from this 20-year war. What does it feel like to you when you hear about the withdrawal of U.S. service members and, and see what's going on? I have a number of feelings and have coursed through those feelings over the last few weeks. Retired four-star General Dan McNeil is a veteran of five foreign conflicts from Vietnam to Afghanistan, where he led both U.S. and coalition forces first in 2002. First, I am doing soul searching to determine, is it fair to say I did my share of the task, that I come up short in some way? Secondly, um, what's a duty owed to those who came home, not carrying their shields, but on their shields. And, and that's my problem. Uh, I predict I'll likely have a difficult time the next time I go to Section M in Arlington. And then there's a part of me that says we came up a little short. Us leaving overnight and uh, leaving the Afghans, you know, the keys on the desk. I didn't think any of us quite saw what unfolded this way. 
Lieutenant General David Barno spent 19 months as the senior American commander in Afghanistan, where he established the first U.S. operational headquarters in Kabul. One of the things we do badly is what the military calls war termination. You know, we're very good at, you know, lining the airplanes and the ships and seizing the capital. Then what? I think that's where, in a lot of ways, Afghanistan has presented us with a really intractable problem. Did you agree with President Biden's decision to withdraw U.S. forces? Yes, I did, Jake. Lieutenant General Carl Eikenberry was at the Pentagon feet away from impact on 9-11. He went on to serve two tours as general in Afghanistan and again no longer in uniform as the U.S. ambassador. You were involved in training Afghan police, training Afghan troops. Were you surprised at how quickly the Afghan security forces folded? I was. There will be people that are former military, maybe active military people from the intelligence community, pundits who have never been to Afghanistan that will say they saw it all coming. And uh, no, uh, very few saw this uh, coming so fast. It's almost like watching a speeding train go by and wondering if it's going to stop or not. General David McKiernan commanded troops from 2008 to 2009 under Presidents Bush and Obama. At that point, the deadliest period for American forces on record. Jake, I'm emotionally invested in what happens in Afghanistan for, for a couple of reasons. First, I empathize with the, the people that live in that country. I mean, they've been at war in some form for the last 45 years. They're a good people. I want them to have a better future. I'm also invested in the thousands of Americans that have served over there and have done, a, I think, an extraordinary job. So I'm very, very worried about what I see. I think we didn't really know what winning was going to be from the start. Eight years into the war, General Stanley McChrystal took the reins in Afghanistan. His success hunting terrorists in Iraq and transforming JSOC, the military's top secret special ops force, led newly elected President Obama to believe that McChrystal would be the general to deliver his campaign promise of righting the ship in Afghanistan. Sources say U.S. President Joe Biden will announce a withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. President Biden says that the last U.S. troops will leave Afghanistan by September 11th on the 20th anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center. The triggered How did you first hear of President Biden's plans to withdraw all U.S. service members? I saw it on the news. You saw it on the news. What was your response? I was not surprised. President Biden was in a very difficult position. Every leader is faced with three options. You either do more, you do less, or you do about the same. You muddle along. It was always safest, a little like Vietnam, to do the middle. President Biden's decision to pull everyone out, I didn't agree with it, but there was a courage to it because he knows that he is going to be held responsible by some people, particularly his political opponents. This is going to be a stain on this president. And I think he's going to have blood on his hands for what they did. This is a sight I honestly thought I would never see. Scores of Taliban fighters and just behind us, the U.S. Embassy compound. I believe we are going to regret this decision to withdraw. 
General David Petraeus, the general behind the surge in Iraq, commanded the war in Afghanistan during the height of its troop surge, peaking at roughly 100,000 American forces in 2011. I remember the day that I heard of the decision to withdraw our forces, uh, and in some ways, I sort of was in a little bit of disbelief. First of all, I didn't really think that it was not sustainable to have 3,500 American troops, given that we've not had a battlefield casualty in a year and the cost is quite sustainable. But then, of course, it is about the loss, the sacrifice, all that we have done together with coalition partners and together with our Afghan partners, shoulder to shoulder, Shona Bashana, as it said. You think we're going to have to go back? I don't know if we'll have to go back or not. But there are plenty of people around Washington who experience both the withdrawal from Iraq and the requirement to go back. So there's plenty of experience in this town when the time comes, if we have to. In 2011, General John Allen, the first Marine to command a theater of war, was tasked with drawing down U.S. troop levels while transitioning Afghans into the lead for all combat operations. We've heard stories about the Taliban telling villagers to marry off their daughters, even very young girls. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be surprised at that. It's not in their DNA to change. And so the way that they inflicted what the Afghan women called the darkness upon them back before we were attacked in 2001, we should not expect that it'll be any different. We've heard it discussed by the Biden administration that there was basically a choice. It was either withdrawal or increased troop levels in Afghanistan. I think there was uh, another alternative. General Joseph Dunford, nicknamed Fighting Joe for his leadership in Iraq, took command in Afghanistan in 2013 and went on to serve as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Presidents Obama and Trump. With a capable counterterrorism force, around 4,000 U.S. forces, obviously accompanied by NATO allies as well, uh, that we could, for a period of time, continue to uh, address our counterterrorism interests. The argument against that is that that's just managing a stalemate in perpetuity. What would you say to that criticism? Well, it depends on, on how you view our presence in Afghanistan. I didn't see a point where we would have sustainable Afghan forces, a thriving democracy, and a thriving economy in Afghanistan. I viewed our presence in Afghanistan as a term insurance policy. When you stop paying a premium, you stop mitigating the risk of bad things happening. Beyond the general's worries for the future came some sobering admissions as to how 20 years of war and the most powerful military in the world could have failed to prevent the Taliban from recapturing Kabul with hardly a shot fired. I have a real sense of tragedy for the Afghan people. I think a Taliban regime will be hard on so many Afghans, so that hurts. The other emotion on our effort is that in my entire experience, I never saw people there trying to screw it up. Five to seven round burst. I saw good people with good intentions, working hard, but I don't think we did very well. We made a lot of mistakes that we've made in prior efforts like Vietnam and others, and I find that sad as well. We could have done better. What mistakes did we make that we had previously made? 
you could start with the idea that we didn't understand the problem. The complexities of the environment, I think, weren't appreciated. We went for what we thought would work quickly over what would have likely worked in a, over the longer term. Complexities that caused one top national security official to say privately, quote, we didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. Did you ever think that almost 20 years later we would still be there? No, I don't think any of us did. Now, that's another place where I think we could have done better. I don't think we sat around a table ever and talked about where's this going to be in 20 years. In fact, early in the time that I was there, we were instructed not to build anything that looked permanent. Keep everything plywood and in some cases canvas and all so that we wouldn't give anyone the impression that we were coming there to stay. But stay, we did, for longer than any country before us, and for potentially worse results. And as U.S. troops left, the people that they fought coming in, the Taliban, resumed control of the country. The question we sought to answer is why? These are shots being fired in Baghdad. Up next. Tell me exactly what you need. You're not going to get it, because i got to take care of this Iraq thing. How the good war became America's forever war. The best way I can describe my feelings when I heard that we were leaving, I, I felt this sense of relief but a thin icing of relief on a huge cake of disappointment. I'm Brett Sheets, I'm originally from Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, and I served in Afghanistan in 2003 to 2004. When we went over to Afghanistan, which was end of the summer in 2003, we were already in Iraq, and there was a weird sense of, whoa, I, I thought I was going into the main effort, and now it's pretty obvious I'm not. I think after a couple months, I realized we don't seem to have a target list. Nation building was the vast majority of what we did in Afghanistan. I realized that in, unless something major changed, that this was not going to work out. The amount of troops, the amount of equipment, the amount of money that you would need to be able to stabilize an entire country like Afghanistan is so gargantuan that some people would say there's no way we could do it, period. But I could definitely tell you there's no way that we could do it while fighting a war in Iraq. I knew we were in deep trouble. USA! 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 Atop the rubble in New York City, days after America was attacked, President George W. Bush vowed the United States would avenge the nearly 3,000 killed on 9-11. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. 
with Ground Zero still smoldering, the Commander-in-Chief ordered the United States military to launch the opening salvo of America's war in Afghanistan. Your objectives are clear. Your goal is just. You have my full confidence, and you will have every tool you need to carry out your duty. The Taliban were routed in a matter of really weeks. And so I thought that was a exceptionally well-run campaign. The U.S. was able to play to its advantages and you know, special forces and in air power and in precision strikes. There was units up in the hills, uh, placing, looking for, uh, looking for terrorists. What did you think your mission was? Well, Mr. Rumsfeld made it very clear. You are to pursue with the intent to kill or capture terrorists. And then you're to build an Afghan national army. No! Do you ever look back and wonder, after defeating the Taliban, whether it might have made more sense just to declare victory and leave? No. You can't just go in and leave. Otherwise, you're, all you're doing is setting the stage for either going back to as bad as it was before or even worse. Afghanistan was the war that there was worldwide support for. There was goodwill for it in a way. NATO invoked the article so that all members were behind to help the United States for the first and only time in history. The Council agreed that an armed attack against one or more of the allies in Europe or in North America shall be considered an attack against them all. What could have been done differently with the benefit of 20 years of experience? Sure. I've thought about it a lot. Right after the 9-11 attacks, I would have made a decision inside the U.S. government to do nothing substantive for a year. And what I mean by nothing, no bombing, no strikes, etc. I would have gone around the world as the aggrieved party and built up a firm coalition for what ought we do about Al-Qaeda. I would have done a mass effort to train Americans in Arabic, Pashto, Urdu, Dari, to get ourselves ready to do something that we knew would be very, very difficult. Hey, somebody answer him. I'm on company. I can't think of any president that would just, okay, let's take a year and, and wouldn't be impeached. I mean, yeah. the, the bloodlust was so strong. I freely admit it. I know it would have been a hard, almost impossible case to make, but I still think that's what we should have done. Could it have been done differently and more effectively? Sure. However, I think at that time, that was the only decision President Bush could have made. The American people, I think, expected retaliation quickly. I was at a uh, dinner in Washington here with several senators in about 2007, and a senior intelligence analyst was at that dinner. And the intelligence analyst said to the senators, Senators, you know, we've won this war twice already. We won it the first time at the end of the campaign in the fall of 2001. He said we, we won it a second time in 2004, which happened to be during my era, when the Afghans elected their first president. This will be a government based on the constitution of Afghanistan and in respect of the constitution of Afghanistan. Outside of the military offensive, there were some early successes in Afghanistan trying to rebuild a country devastated by decades of war, including the first direct democratic election in the country's history. 
I'm very, very happy because now we, I'm sure we will have a good government in the future. And now I can, I can make my future, I can make my life by myself. All those people holding up their finger, showing the die, showing that they had voted. How did that feel? I mean, nobody really knew what was going to happen on that day. I mean, the Taliban had been threatening to blow up polling stations and kill people in voting lines. It was a relatively peaceful day around the country. Eight and a half million people came out and voted. And so it felt good that we were able to, you know, put our weight behind something that was going to be so impactful. But getting President Bush and Congress to provide the investments needed to build on these early successes in Afghanistan, well, that would prove nearly impossible, as attention for the war in Afghanistan had already shifted to a new war, an elective war in Iraq. And this, according to many throughout the military, redirected critical focus and personnel and equipment away from Afghanistan, resources that could have saved lives and potentially changed the outcome of the war itself. I accepted the fact that I was an economy of force and I just looked for ways to use what I had to get to where I thought they wanted us to go. The White House was so focused on Iraq that according to a memo from Secretary Rumsfeld obtained by the National Security Archive, President Bush did not even know who his own commander was. Rumsfeld wrote, quote, He said, Who is General McNeil? I said he is the general in charge of Afghanistan. He said, Well, I don't need to meet with him. Who is General McNeil? He's this man, the man who was fighting to stabilize Afghanistan while his bosses were fixated on overthrowing a different regime in Iraq. The essence of your question is, did Iraq consume resources that could have been applied in Afghanistan? That, the answer to that is just too obvious. You're saying that you didn't have everything you needed. That's correct. Don't forget us if Iraq happens. The opening stages of the disarmament of the Iraqi regime have begun. The chain reaction repercussions for not having what was needed in Afghanistan proved at times deadly. Doesn't look like fun. <laughs> Go Army. Since many of the military's helicopters had been sent to the front lines in Iraq, a number of combat outposts in eastern Afghanistan were placed in vulnerable positions at the bottom of mountains for easier resupply by road. We're sitting in a bowl, so we're constantly under observation. Positions made even more vulnerable by their low troop numbers, overmatched by the growing number of insurgents. Do you think that, in retrospect, it was a mistake to go to war in two different places at the same time? Certainly, the war in Iraq took away focus from Afghanistan. I mean, it was still occurring by the time I went back as a ISAF commander. General McNeil returned to Afghanistan in 2007 to serve as commander of the NATO-led ISAF forces. But this time he finally got that meeting with the president. It's just he and I and the, sitting in the Oval Office. And I had not been expecting this. I expected him to say, here's what I would like you to be able to do. But he said, what do you think you can do? I said, well, I'll get the Europeans outside of their wires and they'll get a little more involved in patrolling and being out amongst the Afghan people. That'll be good enough. I mean, that's just about the way he responded. What does that mean, good enough? I never tried to define that. But after that, he said, and here's another thing. 
I want you to always tell me exactly what you need. Tell me exactly what you need. You're not going to get it because I got to take care of this Iraq thing. I uh, personally resented the war in Iraq. When Lieutenant General Barno arrived in 2003, he had about 57,000 fewer troops in Afghanistan than were in Iraq. 57,000. The following year, that gap doubled to about 115,000. You know, you had a, a V8 engine in Iraq tuned up and you had something much less in Afghanistan, so everything was harder. Here's an example. Summer 2009. We have a horrible problem with improvised explosive devices, IEDs, and mines. We have a total of three what are called route clearance companies to open up routes. In Iraq, at the same time, with far less incidents at that point with IEDs and mines, there are some 90 route clearance companies. Fire in the hole. And that didn't change until there was a, a large surge that was approved by the Obama administration. Right, but that's eight years. That's eight years. Now, what happens in that eight years? You have a Taliban, which has generally a safe haven in the frontier provinces and the federally administered tribal areas in Pakistan. They become resurgent. And eight years, we don't grow fast enough and, and well enough capabilities of the government in Afghanistan and the army. And there you are. We're, we're continuing a war. They actually came pretty close to targeting Cheney. A suicide bomber detonated himself. The Taliban version was the true one, and the U.S. military version was the lie. That's right. What we were doing in Afghanistan, fundamentally, was we were building a military for a nation that did not exist. Let's say the Chinese military has been funded by a billionaire to rebuild uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Right? And he has all the best intentions in the world, saying, hey, let me take over your police force. Let me help you reshape your city in a better image. Do you think the citizens of Louisville, Kentucky aren't going to be like, huh, one, maybe I don't believe them, and two, how can I rob these dipshits of all their money? And so you saw a ton of that with what we were doing. The reality was all these folks were working on patronage networks, whether tribal, ethnic, familial, that had kept them alive for decades. All of us walk in and start throwing billions of dollars of cash around, and so of course, you're going to start seeing some predatory action. Assalamualaikum. We were feeding into a kleptocracy instead of sitting back and thinking, well, wait a minute, who is this guy's real chain of command? Who does he really listen to? If you fight a war for 20 years, by definition, it's not going in the right direction. In 2016, Craig Whitlock, a veteran staff reporter for The Washington Post, received a tip 
about a little-known government report into the war in Afghanistan known as the Lessons Learned Project, led by Special Inspector General John Sopko. It's fact versus fantasy. This is this this problem that we identified early on, this, this odor of mendacity, there was this exaggeration after exaggeration of what we accomplished. After a court battle to obtain the hundreds of secret interviews conducted by Sopko's team, the Washington Post won, and Whitlock published his findings in a series of reports known as the Afghanistan Papers, later expanded into a book. What these interviews and the Lessons Learned project revealed, he says, was a far different history of the war in Afghanistan than the one the American people had been told. The non-watered-down version was, it was much worse than you thought in Afghanistan. Freedom is taking hold in Afghanistan. We are prevailing. We're winning, but the war's not yet been won. Do you think that all the public officials that were saying positive things about the war were lying, were deluded, were hoping that it would get better? Sometimes, sure, I think they were optimistic. But as the war went on and it became clear that Bush's strategy wasn't working, these public pronouncements almost became less excusable. They just couldn't bring themselves to tell the truth. In September 2006, on the fifth anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the commander at the time, General Carl Eikenberry, gave an interview to ABC News, and he's immediately asked, how's the war going? He starts out saying, we are winning but I'll also say we have not yet won. Two weeks earlier, there was a classified diplomatic cable from the U.S. ambassador in Afghanistan back to Washington. That cable started off saying, we're not winning, right? And gives a very pessimistic account saying the public needs to brace itself that things are gonna get worse. How do you feel looking back now at those remarks? So much of it has to do with the uh, context at the uh, time. 2006, tactically, you look at the battlefield and you see some worrisome signs, but you're also seeing progress at that point with the Afghan government. You're seeing more international support uh, coming our way. And so that kind of comment at the time that we are winning, uh, yes, you can say at that moment. Much work still needs to be done here. But the enemy in Afghanistan, they will fail. General, did you ever feel under either the Bush administration or the Obama administration any pressure to publicly convey a rosier state of the war than was the reality on the ground? No, uh, Jake, I did not. You may unwittingly tend to emphasize short-term progress that you're making without giving uh, due diligence to the longer-term problems that are on the horizon. The reality was that five years into the war, the horizon was not looking good. The Taliban were gaining strength and in early 2007 carried out a suicide bomb attack at Bagram Air Base, killing 23 people and narrowly missing its intended target. So in the end of February 2007, Vice President Dick Cheney had made an unannounced trip 
to the region because things weren't going well in Afghanistan. Late in the morning, there's a Taliban suicide attacker drives a Toyota Kroll up to the front gate of Bagram Air Base. Sees a convoy of SUVs coming out of the gate and blows himself up and kills 23 people. The Taliban uh, goes online and makes calls to journalists to claim that this was a suicide attack intended to target Dick Cheney. Immediately, the US military denies this. It was completely coincidental that he was here at the same time this attack occurred. Word had leaked out about his travel plans and that they actually came pretty close uh, to targeting Cheney when he was planning to leave. They missed him by about 30 minutes. That's remarkable that the Taliban version was the true one and the U.S. version was the lie. That's right. What does this attack say about the strength of the Taliban in Afghanistan? I'm not sure it says anything. Because you've got an isolated attack, as we've often said. The facts bore out just the opposite. In the years preceding the violence at Bagram, roadside bombs had more than doubled. Suicide attacks had risen at least fivefold. Meanwhile, some government officials up and down the ranks were painting a much sunnier picture. We're impressed by the progress that your country's making. We ought to applaud the president. We ought to applaud the Secretary of Defense. We have liberated Afghanistan. Their descriptions of the war seem to ignore the rising Taliban insurgency and the chronic longer-term problems standing in the way of genuine progress in Afghanistan, starting with its neighbor to the east. You know this? No. In the U.S. and Pakistan? No, but it is. these are tough issues. Was Pakistan our enemy? No, but Pakistan was not our friend. The things they were doing were simultaneously supportive and duplicitous. It made defeating the Taliban when they were actually being supported to, to a great degree by the Pakistanis almost impossible. The fact that 10 years uh, into the conflict that we were to finally find bin Laden in Abbottabad, which is a big Pakistani military city, should tell us something about how uh, good a friend Pakistan was. I think it really comes down to the United States never really fundamentally understood Afghanistan and what made it tick. And it didn't understand the motivations of the Taliban, where they were gaining their support from. Support that was not only coming from Pakistan. Many Afghans, who may have not liked the Taliban's harsh brand of justice, saw them, nevertheless, as the lesser evil compared to the corrupt Afghan government and its burgeoning military. There was a continuing problem with corruption in the army, and, and uh, that was discouraging. I'll give you an example. One of the senior leaders, while I was there, made a deal with the Chinese to buy boots for the Afghan forces. That leader was, my understanding, given a kickback for buying the boots for the Chinese. He then gave them to his soldiers, and those boots fell apart, and they didn't, they didn't take care of his soldiers the way those boots were designed to do. And I think that's really critical because, in my view, the confidence of the Afghan people in their government and their institutions was either a source of strength or a source of weakness. And we've seen it at various times, both. You quite literally wrote the book on counterinsurgency nation building. We were killed and captured in 
Did that work in Afghanistan? This is my Afghan campaign service medal. I was an eager uh, young lieutenant, you know, newly commissioned. I wanted to do my part, so I was ready. My name is Luis Vega. I'm an Army captain, and I served in Afghanistan from 2012 to 2013. I remember a lot of briefings of like, we need to get to the Afghan people first before the Taliban, and we need to win their hearts and minds, and that's how we're going to win this war. And I thought, okay, that's a unique strategy, but I was in. Some old nostalgia right here is these. The problem is you show up with your team of 18 to 20 year old gung-ho patriots that have testosterone coming out their ears and are ready to defend their country. And, and you're saying, we're gonna drink some chai tea and we're gonna talk about how we're gonna irrigate this farm, build this well, build this bridge. And all the while, you're gonna be maybe attacked, ambushed. And so my soldiers started to grumble and tell me, sir, I'm showing up in full battle rattle with a combat load. I got my weapon at the loan ready. I'm asking these people to trust me when I don't really trust them because so many times the Taliban uses those guerrilla tactics of embedding and saying, I need you to either take out as many Americans as you can during this meeting and you're gonna go meet Allah or I'm gonna murder your entire family. And so then it builds distrust with us, between us and the people. And that was something that was very frustrating for me. And it started to, to wear on my, my unit and me. We're losing our nation's blood and treasure. And that was a hard pill to swallow. You train us to be fighters and then ask us to be nation builders. And we're forcing it down their throat. They had us doing a job that we were not trained to do. That's where I think it was doomed. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. April 17, 2002. Before a room filled with cadets at the Virginia Military Institute, President George W. Bush officially announced a new phase in the war in Afghanistan. Peace will be achieved by helping Afghanistan develop its own stable government. Peace will be achieved by helping Afghanistan train and develop its own national army. And peace will be achieved through an education system for boys and girls which works. It must have been quite a challenge for Americans who knew nothing about Afghanistan, knew nothing about the culture, to all of a sudden find themselves serving as not just soldiers, but diplomats, uh, nation builders, etc. The Army you know, during this period of time didn't really have any counterinsurgency doctrine. And I remember going down to one of my uh, battalion commanders, a lieutenant colonel, right on the Pakistani border. And I said, Mike, how did you get your unit to move from just counter-terrorist strike operations in your first couple months here now to doing counterinsurgency across this province, you know, all across this part of Afghanistan? And he looked at me and he laughed. He said, easy, sir, booksamillion.com. And so he was on the Internet in the middle of nowhere ordering books, 
you know, off of Amazon on counterinsurgency, getting them out to his company commanders and his first sergeants to be looking at and figuring out on the ground while they were actually doing these missions. In 2006, four years after troops began trying to execute counterinsurgency strategy on their own, the U.S. military would finally issue updated counterinsurgency guidance, co-authored by General David Petraeus. A strategy that focused less on conventional warfare and more on securing the support of the population, ensuring aid and infrastructure, trying to win the trust of the people. You quite literally wrote the book on counterinsurgency, coin what uh, our viewers might understand better as the idea of nation building. Did that work in Afghanistan? I think it actually did work uh, during the period that we had the resources to do that. The problem is that in a situation like Afghanistan, you do have to be prevailing, if you will, in the security realm because that is the foundation that allows you to do all of these other tasks. People say that counterinsurgency doesn't work or nation building doesn't work. Well, actually, I, I disagree. We did counterinsurgency in World War II. We just did it after the armistice. That's exactly what the Marshall Plan was. It was building nations that would be durable and resilient against the threat of communism. I think in rural Afghanistan, which is most of Afghanistan, it has not worked. And generally speaking, dissatisfaction with the government was a greater factor than fear of the Taliban. They might dispense harsh justice, but they dispense justice. The U.S. counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan failed, according to General McKiernan. And we now know there were many who saw it failing as a strategy in real time. As one member of General Stanley McChrystal's Afghanistan assessment team told government investigators, implementing an effective counterinsurgency campaign requires, quote, a level of local knowledge that I don't have about my own hometown. Not about his own hometown, let alone about Afghan villages nestled in the Hindu Kush. We would breach a compound and somebody would run out with an AK-47 and we would, as our rules of engagement allowed, we'd shoot him and kill him. And over time, what we learned is almost every compound in Afghanistan had an AK-47. And if somebody came in your living room right now and you had an AK-47, you might go to defend your family. And so I think we killed a lot of people who were defending hearth and home. I think we created a tremendous amount of ill will and fear in the Afghan people. Most of the time we got the individual that we were conducting the raid without firing a shot, most of the time. But when you run that many raids, eventually some of them are going to go bad. And uh, there were some pretty horrible mistakes. Mistakes meaning innocent civilians wounded or killed. <laughs> Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs estimates that more than 47,000 Afghan civilians lost their lives during America's war in Afghanistan. 47,000. And no matter what stories we told ourselves about why those mistakes happened, it is that number, not the battles the U.S. won or even schools that the U.S. built, that number 
that may have ultimately mattered. I will never forget this one uh, incident the rest of my life. The United States had bombed a wedding party. And I said, okay, I am going to personally go down and offer my condolences um, to the families, to the tribal elders of this tribe. And I went down there and spent three or four hours talking, yelling, listening, drinking tea. And at the end of it, I mean, we had killed 20 members of this wedding party. At the end of it, one of the elders who lost four or five family members shook my hand. I said, do you think that would ever happen in the United States of America? I don't think so. How did it come to happen that we bombed a wedding party? I mean, what happened? Because we lost positive identification of the target in the weather and the altitude and mistook them for a group of fighters. We really made an effort that year, and I think succeeding commanders carried it on, is number one, any allegation we investigated, Secondly, we opened up our investigation results to the United Nations, to uh, the Red Cross, to anybody who wanted to come look at it. Later reports found that 47 people were killed at that wedding party. And year after year, innocent civilians continued to lose their lives. Year after year, increasing the challenge to winning Afghan hearts and minds. The civilian casualties and uh, the manner in which military operations are conducted uh, has been a source of serious concern to the Afghan people for a long, long time. Coming up... We have a clear and focused goal. Obama's surge. I've probably spent more time thinking about it than anyone else. You can hear the second part of our special miniseries, America's Longest War, What Went Wrong in Afghanistan, in the next episode of this showcast. And thanks so much for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.